This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another week of O Ship. Uh, this week, we have a really interesting subject, whether you are cannabis aficionado or interested in the industry for professional reasons or investing, whatever the reason may be, a lot of people I know right now are very, very interested in the cannabis and CBD space. I have uh, friends that have invested. I have friends that are working actively in the industry. I have friends uh, and colleagues that are producing marketing and, and sales initiatives and fundraising in the cannabis space. But no one I know really knows the space as well as the chap you're going to meet today called Jeff Arbor. And I've known Jeff for maybe 15, 16 years. I met him back when he was the SVP of North America for an incredible mobile agency called Hyperfactory. He, funny enough, met him because he was uh, ranked the uh, in the top 30 under 30. I think he was n- number one on one of these top 30 under 30 lists. And one of my closest friends and partner in Ike Moen Group was number two. And I remember thinking... I got to meet this guy because I was quite a big fan of the guy who's uh, number two. So Jeff and I ended up meeting up in New York. Uh, we ended up becoming uh, lifelong friends and even in business partners in, in multiple adventures, including a cannabis company uh, called Nana and Pop that Jeff is the founder of. And today, what I really want to focus on is the lessons that he's learned with all the years he spent in the cannabis space, of which there are many. Uh, but I'm going to save all those great stories for him. And you're going to hear all about them on this week's episode of O-Ship. Jeff, welcome to O-Ship. Thank you so much. Very excited to be here. Longtime fan of the show. You know, we spent a lot of time on video conferences this year together, so hopefully some uh, FaceTime together in, uh, in person. But uh, thrilled that we were able to have one of our conversations in front of an audience this time, uh, because I know a lot of people are really, really interested uh, in the space that you're so knowledgeable in. I think, you know, I've handled a ship in lots of different ways. Sometimes I like people to give an introduction of that kind of summarizes some of their experience. But in your case, if you don't mind, I'd like to break this out into chunks because I think understanding the journey that you've had at all these different stages to become an expert in this field, I think is really interesting. And what I was going to challenge you with today is as we talk about these different stages of your kind of even evolution, understanding maybe some of the lessons that you've learned at at each stage, because I think uh, a lot of people are, are experimenting in this space right now. They are jumping in sometimes, you know, uh, b- both feet, whether as an investor or as an industry, but we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of this go wrong. I guess let's start by, could you tell us your, your, your beginnings of your journey uh, with cannabis? Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting industry. It's, it's an exciting industry. And, you know, it really first caught my attention from a career standpoint in, in the summer of 2016. At that point in time, in the November elections, adult use legalization was was on the docket in, I, I believe, three or four states, Massachusetts, Nevada, and California be, being the largest. At that time, I believe there was only three adult use cannabis markets, those being um, Colorado, Washington, and Oregon. 
And so I, I went to school in Colorado and, and, and I grew up fully immersed in, in cannabis and in, in cannabis lifestyle. And so as those markets were kind of turning, I, I, I just couldn't not be a part of it. I, I couldn't be a part of the cannabis sector, something that I've, I've been really passionate about for a number of years. And I knew I wanted to get involved, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, I really had no idea how the industry operated other than what I was reading in press releases. So being the dive into the deep end headfirst type of person that I am, I found an opportunity to get a foot into the industry, um, actually through a cannabis-focused venture fund in LA. Again, this was very, very early on as there wasn't quite a few venture funds in the sector as, as, as a whole, I'll call them a, a venture fund, and basically had an opportunity to work with them and sort of help them figure it out, whatever figuring it out meant. And so I, I packed my bags after living in New York City for, for 16 years, my, my entire adult life, and I, I moved out to LA. And really use that as an opportunity just to figure out, like, what were the moving parts in the industry? Like, how did this whole thing work? And I, I met with anyone and everyone. And so I, I spent about a, a year in the L.A. market, again, just kind of mucking around, taking any consulting assignment that came my way, meeting anyone, meeting everyone, and really, you know, kind of learning that side of the business. What I realized in that time period was a lot of the cannabis brands and operators were based out of LA. However, a majority of the cultivation was in Northern California. And so I myself, I've, I've spent most of my career in marketing and advertising and brand development. And so I got a kind of handle on how that worked by being in the LA market for a year. But I, I, I never really knew about cultivation and genetics and manufacturing uh, above and beyond a few failed home grow in, in college. <laughs> <laughs> so realizing that at the end of the day, like the industry doesn't work without the flower. Like the plant is like the essential component. And again, I, I really had no idea how it grew, what it took to cultivate cannabis or the various differences of, of indoor to outdoor um, to greenhouses. And so I actually had the opportunity to work with a group in Northern California and I moved up and I lived on their cannabis farm for six months. I remember when you told me you were doing this and, and you know, look, I obviously have incredible amounts of respect for you as an entrepreneur, but that was a pretty big ballsy move. I, and there was one part of me was like, this is genius because back then I, I don't think I was a bigger believer as you were, but there was clearly going to be a big opportunity there. And you're basically jumping into the, actually going into a farm. I thought it was a little nuts, but, I, I had to respect you for it. Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely crazy, right? It, it's not something that I think most people would do. But, you know, for me, when, when I entered the cannabis industry, I had such a passion for the space, right? I had such a love and such a connection with the plant stemming from a very, very young age. So, like, it made complete sense to me. Uh, you know, on a personal front, living on a farm, highly recommend it to anyone. As far as the, the understanding in the, of the cannabis industry and the knowledge that it gave me, it really allowed me and has and continues to allow me to navigate the industry from a, a really unique perspective um, based upon the knowledge that I gained in, in, in Northern California. What was the craziest thing of living on a cannabis farm out of interest? So I, I, again, I've spent my entire adult life in, in, in New York City, and, and I think more people live in my building in New York than in the town I lived in in, in, in Northern California. I learned that not everyone has indoor indoor plumbing in the United States, so that's, so that's certainly a lesson. 
Uh, but I think one of the things that resonated most with me about Northern California lifestyle was people don't use phones. You know, if, if you want to have a conversation, you have to go see them. And Northern California is really spread out. So in many instances, you're driving four, five, six hours just to have a conversation with someone. So again, coming from the past, yeah. the fast pacedness life of, of New York City, it was it was a complete juxtaposition. It was this kind of like cultivator to cultivator yeah. type meaning, you mean? Yeah. So it's, more, it's almost like part of that, like, it's not just Northern California, but this, the, the farmer kind of market, you know, so... The cultivation community in Northern California has been, you know, present and consistent and constant since like the late 90s. So I remember being in college and, and, and going to, to Northern California. And, and, you know, since that time and since the, or the original medical movement in California, you had a lot of people from all over the world that moved to this part of the country specifically for, culti for cultivation. And again, this has been going on for 15, 20 years. And if you think back to the early days of, of Silicon Valley, really, you know, Silicon Valley became what it was because there was this community of people building things, right? And they were all kind of centralized and they were sharing knowledge. And there was this sort of like, you know, you can do it so I can do it, just pushing each other throughout the community. And, and that same sort of, of, of interaction has been happening in Northern California for, again, for the last 20, 30, sometimes even longer. And so you have knowledge sharing and, and knowledge of, of cultivation techniques up there that you don't have anywhere else in the world. And so really, for me, it was, it was an opportunity to, to learn and appreciate the legacy market, you know, the market that was there that got us to where we are today, really learn about genetics and, and, and cultivation methodologies and, you know, really what does it take to grow, you know, cannabis, what does it take to grow good cannabis, great cannabis, and then the best cannabis in the world. And it, it, was, it was a great educational experience. And just the, the people that I've met was a lot of fun. We're going to get to where you're at today, because I think that you've identified some really interesting opportunities in the market. Can you say there's anything you kind of learned from that LA, uh, you know, even farm you know, experience? So you've got like a year or two there. What did you take away from those couple of years that may have potentially influenced some of the thinking uh, for how you've kind of set your vision for your for your business today? Yeah, so I, I think a few things that I earned really on that that really resonated with me is, you know, the cannabis industry, while it's unique and it's, it's, it's regulated and there's license requirements and all those various nuances, it really operates for the most part similar to other consumer packaging as actors. You have, you know, wholesale producers, you have contract manufacturers, and, and you have brands. And in cannabis, many people think you need to have all three of those things in order to have a brand and an end product. And, and that's not really the case. There's, you know, a, a, a significant percentage of California cannabis is cultivated by California cannabis farmers that do nothing else other than farm cannabis. So that was something that I learned that, that I really didn't, didn't know going into it. I think this, the second thing that I really learned was the input, the process that you take in cultivation is what drives the output. And this holds true in branding and marketing as well, right? Like if you follow the brand development process, you know, step one, step two, step three, the result is going to be a very strong brand identity, right? And, and, and if you try and skate that process, the likelihood of you resulting with such a, a strong brand decreases incrementally, if not drastically. The same holds true in Canada. 
you know, the best cannabis that is really a result of, of following what I like to call a, an artistic approach to cannabis cultivation. You know, and, and the only way to produce really high quality cannabis is, is to follow that process. And similar to brand development, that process means it takes more time. And so a lot of companies aren't willing to take that extra time because not a lot of consumers know the difference between really great cannabis and good cannabis. And so, you know, again, for myself, uh, thinking about what we wanted to do or what I wanted to do in the cannabis sector, um, it really came around, you know, brand development, product development, how does all of this work and what are the requirements um, that need to be in place in order pr to produce a brand. Because when I saw cannabis in the summer of 2016, you know, again, at that time, there was six or seven different markets. Everyone was really planning for national cannabis rollout. You know, we didn't know if it was going to be through federal legalization and that all the states were going to adopt adult use or forced adoption of adult use, or it was going to continue to be a state-by-state -state thing. But the one, the one sort of sentiment amongst the industry was we're just getting started and it's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger. So the, the, the pace of the industry was something that was very hard to adopt to. It moves very slowly. Is there kind of a conflict in that? I mean, uh, maybe this is part of the opportunity. You've got an industry that feels like it moves slowly. Uh, at the same time, you know, you said it went from, what was it, you know, three or four markets when you started to however many it is today. You know, I mean, that's pretty, pretty crazy. Can the people even afford to move slowly? Uh, you know, yeah, the, no, they can't. Right. The only thing that moves quickly in the cannabis sector are the press releases. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's mind boggling, right? Like look at um, Massachusetts, right? Massachusetts, the state of Massachusetts legalized adult use cannabis by popular vote, I think, six years ago. Six years later, there's only 100 stores open throughout the state. And so, you know, the, the first step is the state adopts an adult use program, like New York, for example. Like New York ha has legalized adult use cannabis. However, they haven't put the Cannabis Control Board in charge yet. And they're basically the, the group of people in each state that outline the rules and regulations in how you apply. And so in order for a business to operate um, uh, in the cannabis sector, any business that touches the flower, they need to obtain a cannabis license. And so you have this um, regulatory body that's overseeing each state market. And so any, like anything that's in government, that takes a long time. You know, cannabis and, and cannabis infrastructure is new. So that means that construction is also a requirement in many cases, either redevelopment of an existing asset, you know, a warehouse and build it out so that it can be a grow room or manufacturing facility or what have you. Construction also takes a, a very long time. And so in order for a cannabis business to go from, um, we want to start a company to we are actually, our doors are open, you don't control the timeline. So as an entrepreneur, you know, your timeline is what dictates your model, your spending, your runway, you know, how much money you have, how much money you should spend. And, and in cannabis, you just never know when the end date is. Like you never know when you're going to actually be able to open the doors after you apply for the application. That's a pretty huge realization. 
on a side note for any cannabis entrepreneurs out there who may be watching this, you're absolutely right. I mean, you go into things with a certain plan and you have some kind of variance that is acceptable risk into that plan, but you have to be able to control that one element and having that one that one side of this taken that you know, kind of ripped out of you know the entrepreneur's ability to control anything or the business owners or whatever. I mean, that's that's kind of creates some crazy big challenges for starting a business in this space. It's bananas. It's absolutely bananas. So, like mm-hmm. a, an example is, I, I have a, a group that I work with in um, New Jersey. And they applied for a medical license. Um, there was an open application. I think I think we're going on three years. I think it'll be three years in November. And essentially, um, part of the New Jersey process, in order to apply for a cannabis license, you had to secure your real estate, which meant you either had to acquire or sign a lease. And so in the instance of the groups that signed or acquired a lease three years ago, those licenses have all been stuck in a lawsuit. So there's like 300, 400 applications in this process. And if you give up your real estate, you automatically pull yourself out of the, the running for a license. Oh, my God. So people have just been having to sit on these empty spaces the whole time? And pay, pay rent. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and, then, and then I'm sure they're not cheap spaces either. No, so those can be no I mean, you know, if, you're, if you're looking to open up a retail, you know, a dispensary in cannabis, it's, it's like any other store. You're looking for high foot traffic areas. And, you know, when there's a lot of foot traffic and organic traffic, the costs go up. And so that's just to put yourself in a position to win the license. And once you win it, you, you know, you've got to invest in the build out and the this and the that and all the other things that are required before opening the doors. So you've seen a lot of different painful things that are happening. You've seen the, the kind of good, the bad and the ugly. You've seen how some of these things can be quite painful for entrepreneurs. Tell the audience a little bit around, uh, about Nana and Pop, uh, because I believe that you know, a lot of your strategy there was to try and work around some of these pain points. And I, I love, uh, I think they may find uh, your approach really interesting. Yeah. But what, what we do at Nana and Pop is we build brands and, and we build brands for, for ourselves. So brands that we own. Um, and then we build brands for some of the largest operators in the space as well. You know, the, the advantage of the cannabis sector from a CPG, a consumer packaged goods standpoint, is there are no legacy brands, right? It's just this wide open playing field and there's hundreds and hundreds of different customer profiles in cannabis. And so for, for someone who spent their career working with, you know, Coca-Cola and AB InBev and Procter & Gamble and Unilever, this is like, it's like a dream come true. Right. Because you have all these customers that you can you can go after and the opportunities and the strategies available are are, are, are limitless, if you will. So what we do is we, we looked out across the, the brand landscape and we built brands for audiences that no one was really addressing. And what we do is we partner with cannabis uh, uh, license holders and each adult use markets. And in many cases, we're building their brands for them. And then they are producing products for us to go inside of our, our brand identities. So, which is unique-ish to cannabis, but that's how consumer packaged goods work, right? It's all driven through wholesale uh, uh, ingredients, wholesale sourcing, and, and contract manufacturing, right? Like, that's how the CBD industry works. You know, there's, you know, 
300,000 acres of CBD that are grown every year in the United States. And there's a few hundred manufacturers that are making the products for every brand out in the landscape. And cannabis is, the THC is becoming more and more aligned with, with how CBD works. There's, there's the nuances to THC because each state is fragmented in the sense that if you sell a product in Massachusetts, that plant needs to be grown in Massachusetts, the product needs to be manufactured in Massachusetts, and then they can never leave. But so what we do is we combine all of those markets through national brand identities and consistent product formulas. And, and that's really all we do, right? Like, you know, Coca-Cola in Atlanta, they've got the, the marketing department and the formulas. And, and, and that was really kind of the inspiration in, in what we do. And so if you're you know, producing a product, and I want to make sure everyone kind of understands this, uh, you know, if you if you're growing, let's say, in California, you know, you can't you can't make a product there and then ship it across state lines, at least the way that laws currently work today. Is that, is that correct? Correct. Today, like everything, every market is, is contained by and restrained within the individual states. There's, there's conversation about, you know, uh, interstate commerce, but, but nothing has, has passed or been approved. So as it stands today, like they're all kind of landlocked markets, which makes it very difficult for large companies but it creates massive opportunities for independent entrepreneurs. You know, we've got, I think there's 19 adult use cannabis markets in, in the United States today um, with Connecticut, Rhode Island and New York being the most recent, you know, so each one of those is essentially, essentially like a, an independent industry um, within a master industry. And so, so I guess the thinking basically is while the product can't cross state lines, brands can. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, what, what, what happens is when an adult use market transitions from medical to adult use in that anyone over the 20, anyone over the age of 21 uh, can purchase cannabis, people ask their friends, right? It's still really new to people. So, you know, having a, a trusted brand that's present in, in multiple states allows for that, you know, sharing, allows for that, that community of, of friends to be able to enter the space together. Which makes it a little less scary. Yeah, absolutely. So, if, if you had to kind of think about you know, where the kind of next big opportunity is, I mean, I guess for starters, did you could um, not to put you on the spot, but did you think that there'd be this many markets legal in twenty twenty one, or are we ahead of schedule or behind schedule based on where you thought we'd be three or four years ago as a, as a country? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, two thousand sixteen was a interesting time for the political landscape. You know, Jeff Sessions, who was in place uh, at the time, was not a fan of cannabis. So in 2016, 2017, even like 2018, everyone was still not sure like if the rug was going to pull out uh, from underneath us. Again, we were all very confident that cannabis was going to continue to progress and there was going to be more states that were going to adopt. But really, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's a political topic. It's a political subject. So life and death is dependent upon what does or does not get approved. Uh, so I knew it would be bigger. I knew that new states would adopt. There were certainly some states that are now adult use markets that I would have never had anticipated. Virginia mm. adult use program went into action July 1st of, of this year. And like Virginia was not a very friendly place to get caught with cannabis. And so that was, that was certainly a shock. States took a lot longer to, to scale than I had anticipated. Everything took a lot longer 
from a financial standpoint for businesses to start, you know, pushing out revenue and start, you know, making margins, start becoming profitable. Um, and really the main driver to that was going back to that timeline conversation and the regulatory and the, the, the fact that you don't control the timeline. What do you think the odds of uh, national uh, legalization is at this point in the next five years? I think it's inevitable, right? I, I, don't, I, 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 don't, I don't know when, it's gonna happen. but I do think it's inevitable. But even once they announce it, it's going to take them forever to figure out how it's going to work. Mm-hmm. And it took Massachusetts you know, five years to open up a dispensary. Imagine how difficult it's going to be when you try and get all these states to, to work together. Because you know, the, the more developed markets, the, the operators that are there are, are, are large, right? And their operations are large. And so you have a certain group of people who are pushing for federal legalization simply because they wanna start selling products above and beyond the states that they're in, right? Like Oregon grows enough cannabis every year to last Oregon seven years. What are they, what are they doing with all this extra cannabis out of interest? I mean, most of it is getting, you know, sold illegally in the, in the traditional market. Traditional, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, a lot of it gets disposed of. And like to dispose of cannabis legally costs money. Like you have to pay a service from the state to come out wow. and get rid of it. So there's kind of this balancing act where there's a group of existing operators who are certainly pers- pushing for, for federal legalization. There's a group of operators who are against federal legalization. At the end of the day, you know, the people are going to decide. I think if I'm a a governor or if I'm, you know, in like Colorado, I want to keep as much revenue in Colorado as possible. On some levels, for certain states, that is to their benefit because it's almost like how Amsterdam or the Netherlands became kind of like a tourist destination. Uh, you, you get you can get some of that same thinking within the U.S. Yeah. It's probably what Nevada wants. Yeah, it. That makes absolutely. Sense. You know, if you think about, you know, if you're an operator and you built this big cultivation center in Massachusetts, um, and all of a sudden federal legalization happens and it's lower cost to produce cannabis in California. I mean, to build a cultivation facility in Massachusetts, you're looking at 20, 30, 40 million dollars. So there's a lot of money in the space in each of these states, and those operators are going to be against federal legalization. So changing gears a little bit, a lot of people I know come to you for advice around this around the space because you know it so well. Would you be comfortable sharing? Again, I'm not looking for a specific example, but maybe some examples, though, uh, general examples of common mistakes you're seeing people, uh, even if you're just hearing about it third you know, third party. Uh, of people trying to enter the cannabis industry, whether it's as investors or starting new businesses? My biggest advice, like if you don't love cannabis, don't do it. There are so many sectors that are rapidly growing, um, move very quickly. There's not a lot of regulatory. It's a very, very difficult space. And if you don't enjoy the space, I'd recommend looking somewhere else. So you're saying, well, there is a big opportunity. This is not for the faint of heart. The cannabis sector taught me patience and, and, you know, coming from, you know, someone who's, who's built tech before or someone who comes from the agency world before, it's constantly like, you know, let's move fast. Let's, let's, let's break things. Let's apologize later. You can't really do that in cannabis. So just know that if you're going in, like it's going to take a lot longer than anticipated, which certainly is the case in in any startup or or any business, particularly more, more so. 
you know, I think some of the mistakes that people make is like, it's weed, so it's going to be easy. You know, um, like, of course, I can, you know, I'll operate the, the weed guy, the cannabis guy. Um, so there's, I think there's a lot of bravado or arrogance when you, I see when you enter the space, which I had as well, admittedly, it's very difficult to navigate. I've had quite a few friends from past lives and past industries kind of consult me before coming into the space and enter the space and then immediately leave it. It's still very new. It's still in this process where the foundation of the industry is solidifying. So it's difficult to build on top of quicksand. But in an industry that is moving you know, slow or, or quickly, being first and obtaining early leadership positions is immensely valuable because cannabis legalization and, and the cannabis movement is not just uh, a United States thing, right? Like this is happening globally. Um, Mexico just passed a, a recreational cannabis. Obviously, Canada is completely legal. There's a bunch of Caribbean countries that have adopted programs. And there's a lot of things going on in Europe. There's a lot of movement amongst uh, the medical platforms in European countries. And there's a lot of conversations and steps towards adult use legalization in Europe as well. So, you know, I think people thinking that the industry moves as quickly as the as the press releases is certainly something that I've been guilty of as, as, as well. You mentioned something earlier, which I think is a fu fun subject to go back to. And I think uh, you talked about the weed guy, so to speak. And I think there is this, uh, at least even in my you know, understanding of the industry, you know, this kind of disconnect between you know, some of the images, especially, frankly, of people of a certain, a certain age who, you know, even I think about marijuana to me and, you know, when I think about like my high school years or whatever in the 90s, it was like, you know, head shops and black light posters and, you know, Grateful Dead t-shirts. And I don't think that's, that's just not, this is not, you know, today's cannabis world, right? And I'd love to kind of get your, your sense of, of this kind of perception versus reality and maybe even, you know, really w the reality of where it is today and where it's going to be going in the next couple of years, I think would be really interesting. Yeah. I mean, if you look across some of the purchase data in California, the largest demographics and audiences that are going in to purchase cannabis products inside a dispensary are over the age of 40, like significantly larger percentage of people are over the age of 40 that are purchasing products than under the age of 40 in dispensaries in California. And so we've, we've seen this, you know, this big increase in um, baby boomers and consumers using it over, over the age of 55, you know, this whole demographic and audience that grew up, you know, cannabis being illegal, but also were children of the 60s, right? Where cannabis was kind of like its first coming out phase, if you, if you will, in a major, major way. And so we're seeing these older, older audiences adopting to cannabis a lot faster than anticipated. You know, I think the reason why you see these older audiences um, initially being the larger, larger demographics at the dispensary is because the younger, the younger demographics are still using their guy, right? Still calling the person on the beeper or having someone come deliver the cannabis that they've been getting it from. Wait, wait, hold on. I'm, I'm going to check that on their beeper. Yeah. They're going to use their beeper. Yeah, we still use so I can't, I can't let that one We still use Jeff. those in New York. I would love to see someone who had a beeper. Uh, so Jeff, Jeff, I want to go be conscious of time. Uh, we had a great uh, question from the audience. So I'd like to read to you. And it said, uh, hi, Jeff. Is it possible to integrate the cannabis sales and restaurant business? I feel like providing uh, uh, big as food 
uh, with cannabis to give munchies taste would bring a lot of dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar yeah, sign. Yeah, love, love the question. Love the sentiment. Yes. So cannabis lounges and cannabis consumption lounges, which are basically you know places where you can consume cannabis on the grounds and they serve food and, and, and other items. The first one opened in California a little before the pandemic, maybe six months before the pandemic. And cannabis lounges at the time in California were only legal in West Hollywood, I think. Since that time, over the course of the last you know six or seven months, New York adopted consumption lounges as their initial bill. So when New- the state of New York came out and said, we're gonna legalize adult use cannabis, they also said they were gonna legalize cannabis consumption lounges. Um, which would basically be those establishments where you can serve food and cannabis. Since New York has come out and said, we're going to do this, Nevada has legalized consumption lounges, as has Illinois. So I think these things, um, these consumption lounges, these on-site physical locations where you can consume cannabis and food and hang out with people, um, are going to continue to become more and more of a thing. How they're structured and how they're set up is still a state issue. But the fact that New York legalized them part of the core bill is now kind of forcing the hand and driving other markets to to adopt this type of legislation. One interesting, uh, we were having a chat the other day about, uh, you know, basically how in New York, if I remember correctly, you were basically saying that, there, you know, any place that someone can smoke a cigarette, they'll be able to smoke cannabis. Yeah. Was that, was, if I remember yeah, that today. correctly? And it, so it's like that today. So. Again, shows what happens. I haven't left you. Know, I haven't been up to New York in a year. Can't wait to get traveling and get on a side note. But you know, specific to this, do you think you know, if that's the rules, do you think you might find more smoking spots start to emerge, not because they want to enable smokers, tobacco smokers, but because they want to enable cannabis smokers? Yeah, Does that make sense? yeah. So it's it, you know, it's a really, it's a really interesting issue, right? And so in um, in San Francisco, because I think until like four or five years ago, smoking inside your apartment or your home was not an evictable offense. So you could tell someone not to smoke inside of a rental property, but you couldn't kick them out for that. You can now. In the state of New York, you can kick someone out of their apartment for smoking. And in Mass- San Francisco, wow. you can evict someone for smoking tobacco, but you cannot evict them for smoking cannabis. And so these are kind of the realities that we're, we're dealing with. And this is one of the reasons why it takes a long time for these, pro, these, these states to go from, yes, we're going to accept adult use cannabis to the thing actually being live is there's various nuances that need to be considered that like you don't really think about in the onset. And so in New York, no one really has outdoor space. So the only way for New York to adopt an adult use program was for them to legalize consumption lounges. And so, you know, whether or not you'll start to see, you know, cannabis spots set up, my expectation is yes. You know, Connecticut just legalized cannabis as well. And part of their program is you can consume cannabis wherever you can consume cigarettes as well, as long as it's on private property, uh, like parks and things like that, wherever smoking tobacco is banned, as is cannabis. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, I mean, the streets of New York always kind of had a, a hint of, of cannabis to them. I would say it's increased a little bit since the program has been enacted. But like what's to come at scale? We'll see. Um, a lot of new cannabis consumers will never smoke cannabis. 
right? Or consume it through edibles mm-hmm. or beverages or, or other form factors which are increasing in popularity because of the whole smoking element. And, and some people just don't want to smoke. Yeah. So on that note, great, great transition where some people just maybe don't want smoke, but some people may want smoke. So uh, we've got a question from the audience from Brett McCall. And he says, as the industry matures in the first U.S. states like Canada, Oregon, Washington, Illinois, etc., do you see more of the quote-unquote nuance taste and feel profile becoming more relevant and lower THC products becoming a trend? Yes. And taste is everything. Inside the cannabis plant, you've got different cannabinoids. You've got CBD, you've got THC, THCA, THCV. We'll kind of leave that. In addition to that, you have what's called terpenes. And, and, and terpenes are what make up the flavor and the smell profile of any vegetable or fruit. And so like terpenes are found in cucumbers and in limes. They're also found in the cannabis plant. And, and the, the, the terpene profile um, really dictates how the plant smells and tastes. And the effect, the effect of cannabis is more uh, associated with the smell and taste than the THC uh, amount. This is all kind of new stuff. Um, this is all kind of new-ish knowledge, and, but in more advanced markets like California, you know, like Colorado, like Oregon, like Washington, you know, cannabis connoisseurs, they're not, no one's going into a store and asking for the strongest cannabis, right? Like I've never walked into a store in my entire life and asked for the strongest wine. And, and I think most wine drinkers would say the same thing. That's a great point. You know, <laughs> a lot of this comes down to knowledge. We as a country have not been able to study the medical, the, the cannabis plant, medical or for don't use otherwise, ever. It used to take seven years just to apply to conduct a hemp study at a university. And so there was very few studies in the U.S., so there's very few like reputable knowledge sources. That's changing drastically. And so the abundance and the presence and the importance of terpenes and, and how it affects the, the, the smell and the taste is still relatively new from an industry perspective, but it's really going to dictate the, the qualification of like real high quality cannabis versus everything else in, in the long term. It's all about taste and smell. And if you're new to cannabis and, and you're wondering like what, what to do or, or how to, uh, what, what different strains to, to try, the nose knows. Smell it. Right. If you lean in, your body's probably going to have a good reaction. If you lean back, maybe not so. And all of this ideology stems from um, sense and, and, and Chinese early medicine. So this isn't new science. This isn't new knowledge. It's just knowledge that we didn't really realize was as prevalent in the plant in, until a few years ago. That's actually a great, I think, a nice uh, high point to kind of end this week's episode, uh, Jeff. I think talking about the business, but also frankly, appreciating the product for what it is. The best thing you can do to support us is give us a like, share the content, or our favorite, subscribe. Whether you're on YouTube, uh, subscribe. If you're on Facebook, or follow us or on LinkedIn, uh, follow me. You can see all of this if you want direct links to any of these platforms at oshipshow.com. If you want to learn more about Jeff Arbor, search for Jeff on LinkedIn or check out nanaandpop.com. And you can actually get in contact with him uh, via any of the contact uh, forms on that site. Or even uh, they can, can they find some of your, the products on uh, on Amazon or places like that? Jeff? You can go to elliesremedies.com. 
Um, we've got some some CBD products, some full spectrum products, as well as some uh, THC products available on on that site. And you know, keep an eye out for our, our THC products in, in various adult use markets across the U.S. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks again for coming on the show. Always great to see your face. Always love picking your brain. And I hope uh, those of you that uh, tuned in uh, learned something interesting today. Thanks again for watching OSHIP and have a great week. The OSHIP Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie will see you next time when we will once again be raising the sales for the O-Ship Show.